I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. We're so excited to share our interview with Brita Lee Shane. Brita Lee Shane is the author of the book, Seeing the Real You at Last, Life and Love on the Road with Bob Dylan. She's also an activist and a musician. We loved her book, and after talking to her, I can say that she is smart, funny, fascinating, and totally magical. Yes, Brita has had an intimate relationship with Bob Dylan, and in one of our favorite books we've ever read on the Muses and Stuff show, she writes about that experience. She told us that she traveled around the world, literally and figuratively, with Bob Dylan. We had the opportunity to interview this amazing woman, who was first impressed with Elvis Presley at the age of seven, quickly becoming a member of his fan club. She considers herself a Rolling Stones girl, and has had hilarious and synchronistic interactions with Steve McQueen and Frank Zappa, which she tells us about. Brita also wrote a master's thesis, which is published in the British Journal of Educational Psychology, and she's written an article called In the Defense of Yoko Ono, which of course we get into. When we asked Brita what her biggest accomplishments were, she said that they were surviving her childhood and surviving Bob Dylan. <laughs> also, we want to congratulate her on the accomplishment of her enduring marriage to her husband of 25 years. We caught up with Brita. She was relaxing in nature, somewhere in California, and dedicating her time and energy to politics and environmental issues. Be sure to check out Postcards to Voters, which she mentions in the episode. 
She's also co-producing three benefit concerts for Rock the Vote and making music. Her latest CD is called What the Hard Wants, and we suggest that you go to her website and buy it right now. If you would like a personally signed first edition copy of her book, you can go to her website, com. We'll put that in the show notes. And one last thing. When she was in a relationship with Bob, he was on tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And in this interview, she tells us about it. Like the time Bob asked her to make his set list. Well, he asked her a lot, actually. And this time, she put something on that set list that surprised the Heartbreakers. You don't want to miss this one. My head is spinning round and round My feet are flying off the ground You own my heart, my soul, my skin You know I want to be with you And you can blow my mind if you want to When we're not looking Silhouettes flashing In the glass Hot is hot They know what's cooking They know I wanna Eat you And you can blow my mind If you want to So Brita, we like to start our interviews By asking about your childhood like what what were you like as a teen and a preteen what posters did you have on your walls were you always a music fan i was always a music i um grew up though i was raised like in topanga canyon out in the middle of nowhere so i was sort of a loner and then when i got to high school I was, um, you know, introduced to the Beatles became popular and the Rolling Stones, and I was a rebel, so I liked the Rolling Stones actually better at that time than the Beatles. <laughs> I was just uh, the uh, contrary type that way. But when I was a kid, I was very impressed with Elvis Presley. And um, and then we're talking like from age seven to nine or something, because I saw him on the Ed Sullivan show, and it it, it was it wasn't the very first show because that one is the one where they wouldn't show him from the waist down. It was the second one where they showed everything, and even at seven, looking at this guy dancing around the stage, I was just like, oh my. God. So I uh, became a member of the Elvis Presley fan club. And somewhere there is a picture of me in an Elvis Presley t-shirt from that time. I think that's like every reaction. Yeah. I definitely remember being seven. (laughs) Yeah. And going, (gasps) for the cute cute boys. So I think he was the first one. They screamed louder than the music. The girls screamed louder than the music, you know? Yeah, it was more than just about music. It was about the entire experience of seeing something new and, you know, something so fascinating and those dance moves, the way he moved his hips. Oh, so good. 
later when I got to college, I was um, I had posters of Steve McQueen and John Paul Belmondo and even David Hemmings from the movie Blowout because I yes. got kind of interested in art films and stuff. And, um, but I, you know, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about Steve McQueen and maybe I only got the poster when I got to college, but I always thought Steve McQueen was something very intriguing, you know, even as a kid growing up. I definitely agree. uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had an experience where I came in very close contact with him after I'd gotten out of college. Oh, I was working at <laughs> I was working at a talent kind of it was like business manager's office up on Sunset Boulevard. And they had a big lobby there. And it was an old vintage building with the black and white tile. And one day, Steve McQueen rode his motorcycle into the lobby of the building. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I I was there. And, um, yeah, it was a real high point. (laughs) Only Steve McQueen could get away with something like that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they were all crazy about him. Yeah, yeah. So. Did you grow up in a musical household? I did. Um. My uncle by marriage was a music producer, and he had been a big band leader, like in the 1930s, and he even wrote some songs during the 50s and 60s that uh, he co-wrote them with people, and that some of them became hits. And uh, he used to send me the 45 records, like stacks. And stacks. I don't know if you remember 45 records. They were, you know, slightly larger than a big pancake. (laughs) And um, everybody had them and you would play them on your high fi or whatever. So he would send me like Dion and the Belmonts and the Shirelles and a few other kind of, you know, the the people that were the big hit songs from, from that period. Um, and my mother was a, uh, torch singer. Um, she had a really big voice. I mean, she she had studied opera and she, um, was a real rebel and she started singing in nightclubs when she was 16. She lied about her age. So, um, and later I had a recording of her. I don't have it anymore where she was singing at, um, at Radio City Music Hall. Wow. Cool. But our voice our voices could not be any more different, you know. It's like my influences are Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, Lucinda Williams and Bob Dylan. So totally. I basically sound like I'm at the bottom of a gravel pit. <laughs> <laughs> it's we were talking about that. It's quite unique uh to hear a woman singing in that voice it's so beautiful and you just you you don't see a lot of women singing like that but beautiful in a way that's different than your traditional yeah beautiful what people think is a beautiful voice but it's cool yeah it's mesmerizing it's really nice thank you guys yeah i used to be able to sing but once i started i mean you know sing more like a girl (laughs) but um 
once I just felt that I started to inhabit that sort of persona, mm-hmm. it's like um, I, I can't go back. It's just who I am now. I love that. So speaking of who you are. Yeah, uh, we really liked your bio. You, you wrote that you were born with a transistor radio in one hand and a pen in the other. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, have you always been writing music or writing in general? Yeah, I've always been writing. My mother insisted, and I'm very grateful that she did, that I take piano lessons. So I started taking piano at age five. And uh, and then my uncle was sending me all of this music, and um, I'm trying to remember everything. Oh, my aunt was a top script supervisor in New York City, and that's my mother's sister, and she's the one who was married to my uncle. Cool. And um, she did all the big New York movies, all the Academy Award winners, Splendor in the Grass and Failsafe and the hustler and you name it, you know, and she would send me the screenplay. So I started reading the screenplays at an early age, but about 10 years ago, I went to my high school reunion and, um, people came up to me and said that they still had little short stories that I had written when I was in high school. Nice. So, um, I mean, even, even younger than high school, but yeah. So there was all of that, and, you know, I was like the first kid to have a transistor radio. I love and, that. You know, back back then, it was, it was like I got, it was bubblegum pink, and it was, it was pretty big, you know. It's kind of like when cell phones came out, and they were just gigantic. So the first transistors were pretty good size, and I would be like on the tetherball court, in um you know in sixth grade or something and have carrying that transistor radio with me listening to songs from the you know 50s that's so cool and cool family too yeah um so speaking of cool you have a degree in educational psychology what made you pursue that route? And is there anything from that learning experience that you've taken with you throughout your life? Well, I want to be especially grateful for even some of the things that happen to you that aren't that uh, pleasant at the time or whatever. But I feel like every experience you have contributes to who you are at the moment. And people have asked me if I would trade this with somebody or whatever and I wouldn't I wouldn't you know life's not perfect but it's who I am now and um, I, I'm actually fairly proud of that uh, I ended up publishing that was one of the first things of mine that ever got published was the was my master's thesis that was published in the British Journal of Educational Psychology and I looked it up recently online about, oh, actually, I looked it up really recently, but about five years ago, I looked it up and saw that somebody had written a book using, you know, using it and um, giving me credit. And I went and bought the book and it was really cool. So, and it also prepared me because 
it was the British Journal of Educational Psychology that it was published in. I got letters from people all over the world. And um, I was only like 22, I think. And um, I was laughing, thinking that it prepared me for getting the letters from people all over the world that I've gotten since I wrote the book about Bob. <laughs> That's so remarkable. That's like, that's so exciting. Speaking as well of being published. And a remarkable woman. Yes. um, Our podcast, of course, celebrates the voices and stories of women connected to music. And we were really fascinated to hear that you had written an article called In Defense of Yoko Ono. Uh, We recently did an episode on Cynthia Lennon. And some negative comments were left about Yoko on that post. And can you speak a little bit about the ongoing defense of Yoko? And why did you feel compelled to write that? Wow. It's so hard to believe that, uh, you know, people would still have a grievance at this late date. I mean, it's not very evolved, I think. But uh, for me, I had been widowed myself at age 26, and um, I'd been married for six months when he got killed on the back of a friend of ours motorcycle. And uh, my upbringing, you know, was not the, uh, you know, as cool as the family sounds. It was a very, very dysfunctional family. And... uh, By the time I was 26, which is the age I was when Ron was killed, I didn't have any parents left, and I was an only child. So to have this new guy that I had met a year and a half before and, and, uh, you know, decided that we were compatible enough to move forward in life ripped from me at age 26. I was totally devastated, and um, I I thought about, you know, it, it was so weird. I think I say in the book something like, even then, they, the people around me became ghosts, and I was reminded of the Dylan line in Idiot Wind, where he says something like, people see me all the time, and they just can't remember how to act. And that was suddenly how all these people that I had known for years became around me. And so I immersed myself in my work. And I had become a real estate agent to support my writing habit. I was never set up to. Like, that wasn't my life's goal. I was was just, it was a means to an end. But after my husband died, I, I started working like 80 hours a week. So... For 26, 7, 8 years old, I started making a lot of money. And that really alienated me from friends, you know. And when it came out about Yoko, when she released Season of Glass, I just, I, I, I knew that just like me making a bunch of money selling real estate, uh, when she made Season of Glass, it was just one artist documentation of working through her grief and pain you know and I I mean I personally loved loved the record myself that I just couldn't believe that people were so sung up here they worship John Lennon 
but vilified Yoko Ono, and yet John saw something in her uh, that he truly loved. And now they, they're jumping on a, onto a Cynthia Lennon thread, you know? Crazy. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> that was exactly it. Okay. And it's really fascinating, too, because no one, no one said anything negative about John and his participation in things. And it, like, he's a grown man making his own decisions. We didn't have tons of comments. It was a couple, like it was just a few and they were both women that had said that. It was just fascinating. Uh, that people it's like, crazy. Yeah. Still blaming Yoko for, you know, the split of the Beatles. Breaking the split of her, the Beatles. Yeah. And the split between John and Cynthia, but it's like, this is John making choices. <laughs> You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. Right. And, you know, he wasn't exactly playing with a full deck either. You know, you have to cut people some, some, uh, some slack. Uh, but there, there seemed to be this cultural division between people. It's kind of like between the nurturing mother who would understand uh, somebody working through their grief and the the punitive strict father who would beat up on her psychologically and women uh, there's a lot of women that have that personality too it's like you can't find a job you know it's your fault or you know so many things it's a very sad time right now so yeah totally we have been talking so far about some of the things you've done, like your writing and um, your degree and the letters you've gotten from people. What are some of your proudest accomplishments? I know that you touched on that briefly, but anything else that you'd like to throw in there? Just we want to we just want to celebrate you a little bit more before we really start getting into the book. Truly, my biggest accomplishment was surviving my childhood. 
And, uh, I, you know, I had two narcissistic parents and we lived out in the middle of nowhere and I was an only child. So it was just me with these two kind of really insane people. Um, and I did manage to cut out a pretty good path for myself in spite of it. And, uh, I probably, the second biggest was surviving Bob. Wow. (laughs) But, uh. Oh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I'm proud of. I am proud of the fact that after surviving my childhood, after surviving Bob, and after surviving how many relationships as a woman because of my dysfunctional childhood that only lasted a year to a year and a half, that I have finally been married for 25 years to the same man. I'm very proud of that. Hell yeah, sister. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Congratulations on 25 years. That's amazing. In our hands right now, we have a copy of Seeing the Real You at Last, Life and Love on the Road with Bob Dylan by Brita Lee Shane. Now, I just have to say, first of all, holding this book, the cover is amazing. The cover is amazing. The inside of the book, it's just like even before reading it, I'm holding the book and the it's sexy. The book looks sexy, okay? It feels good. It feels good, too. It's kind of silky. Oh, totally. So it's just, it's very, very attractive right off the bat. You obviously have very good style. Not only that, getting into the book, it was one of the funniest and sexiest rock memoirs that we've ever read. So for people who, (laughs) it's true, for people who are fascinated with Bob Dylan, this is an intimate but lovely portrayal of this time in his life and your relationship together. It's a slow burn in terms of pacing. I loved the pacing and the timing of it. And then a bond kindling with eventual fiery encounters. So sexy. (laughs) Can you speak about the writing process for you? And do you have any plans on publishing another novel or continuation? Any more memoirs? Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I'll just I'll just start I'll start at the beginning and work my way down. That as part of my journey to find peace within the chaos of that childhood I was telling you about, I had a spiritual teacher. In uh, how old was I when I was? I was pretty old, like in my thirties. Who recommended journaling as a therapeutic tool? So, like ten years after that, you know, I mean, yeah, well, probably ten years after that, but also ten years after I had um, stopped traveling around the world, literally and figuratively, I might add, with Bob, I was to realize I was still tangled up in him when the news broke on CNN that he had been hospitalized with a potentially fatal heart problem. So I thought that out of respect for my marriage, I'd been married for five years, and all of a sudden I was like hooked back in with Bob and I thought, well, I, I need to do something about it. So my book started as a journal. It was just to myself. And 
the weirdest thing is as soon as I put pen to paper, as it were, it kind of wrote itself. And, you know, when I was done, I thought, wow, you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, the arc of our story and all of that, you know, it just all seemed to work really beautifully. So I was very proud of that. I had written another novel before then um, called Unsuspecting Heart that at first I had gotten a, uh, I had had an agent, a New York agent for it, uh, but believe it or not, memoirs were not a thing that people were into, even when, when I first uh, finished the Dylan book. So it, it, I would call that book more of an autobiographical novel. It's about growing up in Hollywood in the 50s, um, you know, and my dysfunctional childhood. And I'm really hoping later in the summer, which is only going to be another month or so, that I get back to to take a look at that again and, and see what's there. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely want to read more. That's great. So you went from being a fan to a friend and then from a friend to a lover to one of the most mythical music legends ever. Uh, What surprised you most about Bob when you entered his world? Well, you know, I was very um, insulated. He was very um, um, armored, I would say. Um, and I didn't really do anything to change that. I think, I, I, I mean, I didn't like kiss up to him or anything. I just thought that, um, I thought, I even said to my boyfriend, wow, wow he's so guarded or something like that. And he said, you don't understand. He has to be like that, you know? And I really didn't understand. I mean, fame is a huge burden and, um, it's amazing that he's still around, I've got to tell you, you know, compared to so many other icons that we've uh, that we've lost. So he must be doing something right in that regard. But um, once uh, that shifted, we had I, I had always had this feeling that we would get along and we really did. I don't know how that happened. So he was very playful and um, romantic and funny. And then he wasn't. (laughs) Wow. That's a really, (laughs) yep, poignant way to put it. But you're totally right. I'm reading yet another book about Elvis. And uh, yeah, it's tough to, even though I know the story, it's, it's tough to hear it again. And you're right. Hmm. Uh-huh. Just soaking that in. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, just talking about this cover of the book and then just you and who you are, you do have um, incredible style and you have given Bob or you had given Bob some incredible gifts when you knew him, like the Bob Dylan shirt and like clothing that he loved. Have you always been a good gift giver? Are you like that with everybody? No, that's <laughs> funny you should have. <laughs> I, um, you know, as time has gone on, 
your you know time just seems to go faster and faster. So I still will make I still will spend hours making something for somebody, but it has to be a person that that I care about enormously. You know, um, it's just you know time is too limited, but I love it. You know, it's just another outlet for creativity and uh the same thing with throwing parties yes we were we wanted to ask do you still throw awesome parties i do i just uh went for my um i'm not gonna say how old birthday and um that was a big smash hit but my um my cd release parties were so um, amazing. They were just, you know, we had an incredible time. I have this friend named Sharon who I could practically go into business with as like eccentric party planners. And, um, she co-produced my CD releases with me because I like to curate everything, you know, right down to, you know, oh my God, you know, the crumbs that are left after the cake is eaten on the table or whatever. So um, anyway, the first CD release party that I had, it was actually, I'm sorry, it was the CD release and the book. I had a combined party for that, and it was at this fabulous vintage and children's jewelry store in Pasadena. And it was on, you know, two levels and we had this great stage and I had a full band and everything and we had the most incredible food ever. But the point is, um, oh, and, and I had all these pictures of Dylan blown up and, you know, it was really, it, it was very um, perfect. But anyway, but we had a custom cake made that was iced Dylan's 1960s face on it, smoking a <laughs> cigarette. Oh, man. Do you have so, photos of that? Uh, it, I do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I see this. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, and so, and then the next one, Sharon made these little plastic, she had these plastic, she found these figurines that that were um, like silhouettes almost with a male and, and a female guitar player. And she made one of them Bob Dylan and the other one me. So, so anyway, we have fun. We, we have fun when we do these things and um, it's all in the details. And Oh, totally. Uh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, well, from one great party yeah. thrower and planner to another, I went out to a show. My friend's band was in town, and uh, yeah, they reminded me of the awesome parties I used to throw. And I met somebody who was like, "Oh yeah, I think I was at a party at your house years ago." Like, I think you probably were, my friend. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, those parties that that I threw with Ernie with the uh, with. Um, you know, where Bob would show up or we'd have a Cadillac in the driveway with the top down as extra seating for people to sit at, you know, Uh, just, uh, yeah, that's, that kind of stuff is fun and really takes your mind off of what's, you know, what's ailing you. Yeah. That's really cool. And if 
anybody listening to this now is curious to um, learn more about those, and they should definitely read your book. Everybody should read that book. <laughs> Thanks. So um, can you talk more about your musical career? You had mentioned that it was a CD release as well as a book release. Right. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I started playing the piano when I was five. So I knew how to read music. And I played all the way until I was 16 when I got too cool. Mm-hmm. To I thought it wasn't cool to play the piano. So that's so I'm, I'm an idiot. And then like in... 1971, my I went to see Carol King open for James Taylor at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. Oh my god! And I thought, oh my god, right? And so um, my mother took me to McCabe's the next day and bought me this little classical guitar. It was it was an Estrella. They still make those, but um, so I took guitar lessons and stuff, but. My mother was so strict with me and so um, critical. Uh, and when she she passed away in in seventy two, but her voice just kept living through me. And so after a couple of years of playing the guitar, I gave it up because I thought I never was going to be great at it. Well, guess what? If I had kept playing all those years I'd, I'd be a lot better than I am today but I do enough musically with with my instrument to support my lyrics and I've always loved lyrics but it was not even when I was with Bob it was uh 87 you know 15 years after that I think that um we had a dog my favorite dog, Cisco, who I had gotten as a puppy, and he was a champion Malamute mixed with a Samoyed and a wolf. Whoa. And he was just the I know, just the most oh, gorgeous, loving, but um, rambunctious, you know, I mean, the troublemaker. And anyway, he died at age seven, which was way too young. And my husband and I realized that this dog was kind of what was holding us together in some way. You know, everything was focused around the dog at that point. And all of a sudden the dog was gone. And my husband played mandolin when he was a kid. He had learned how to play mandolin from an old vaudevillian in Hollywood that lived across the street from him. So, um, and I had this guitar, and all of a sudden, you know, we started playing old Bob Dylan songs and Beatles songs and um, doing all this stuff. And one day, I just wrote a song, and that was the beginning of it. And somehow, I've managed to accrue a small fan base. I mean, I when I play out, it's a pretty good house. So that's so amazing, and I love that. Like. The music brought you guys together and everything. You did. Yeah. You did, however, have a unique experience with Bob. You wrote a song with him? Yeah. Well, that was pretty crazy because I'm not sure I mentioned that, you know, as a kid, like 
rich kid on the piano, I would write little pop songs or whatever. Um, but when I knew Bob, I was a screenwriter. I was, uh, you know, had a screenplay with an agent that was going out and around town and stuff. And, um, you know, I was just uh, so in awe of him, you know, when I found myself sitting on the floor in a hotel room with just him and his guitar and a notepad. So uh, sometimes I was just like so in awe of him, I could hardly say anything. And, and he's like, you write the words. I really need them right. Brita, you write the lyrics. <laughs> And I was I was very intimidated. Since then, I've learned that the fastest way to get to the heart of a song is to throw whatever comes into your mind on the page and then toss it later if it doesn't work. But um, and I wound up I did wind up writing the last verse to our song by by myself, like you know, you know, fifteen years later or something, and. Uh, you'd be shocked at how many people say it's their favorite verse. So, <laughs> yeah, Brina, <laughs> very cool. Well, you, well, you're putting that out there, but you know, my favorite when I do my CD release and and uh, readings and stuff, my last reading is always eight words before a song that I wrote, well, before I do the rendition of um, Make You Feel My Love, which is one of my favorite latter-day songs of Bob's. And my eight-word reading is, Brita, Brita, I love you, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all the... um, yeah, that's all the uh, that's all the introduction that song gets. <laughs> oh, it doesn't need any more than that. And cue the song. <laughs> that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, we recently interviewed Alice Carboni Tench, who is um, married to Benmont Tench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, you had a relationship with Bob at the same time he was on tour with the Heartbreakers. Which is so cool. Are there any memorable <laughs> moments? Great. Are there? I'm sure there are many, but just because I know I read it in your book, but because I'm such a, a fan, I'd like to hear it from you. Any memorable moments that you'd like to share? Uh, um, well, I I was not a big fan of the Dead when he did the uh, the Dead tours, you know. It, mm-hmm. it, uh, it just it was so heavy. It was just something that didn't speak to me spiritually. But when he was with the Heartbreakers, they were an incredible. Uh, they just offered him so much support that it just buoyed his performances. But I do remember one night uh, Bob had me make the set list, and he did it did it a few times. But this particular night, he had me write the set list, and and um, out of the blue, I asked him. I said, "Did uh, would you play Desolation Row for me?" And he he like groaned, you know. And then he goes, "We haven't rehearsed it, you know." <laughs> and so. Um, and so then I was like worried that, uh, you know, you know, that I defended him or something, you know. And then that night we get out there and at some point 
without even telling the heartbreaker, she just launches into Desolation Row. And, and, you know, now that I'm a musician, I, I can kind of go back and think about what that performance was like because it takes mentally, like the petty band, you know, to, they've got to go, oh, okay, and what did I ever know about this song? And maybe I'll play it now or maybe not, you know. So there was like this tentativeness at the beginning with everyone except for Ben Mont. He just, he knew that that song in his soul. Yeah, he did. And I was standing. I was standing behind him on stage watching him, and he was always my favorite to stand beside anyway because I was, you know, born with a piano apparently in my hand as well. So, um, yeah, so Ben Mott was completely unfazed, and he just hammered hammered the whole thing home. And the whole thing came together, and it was really a high point. And I, apparently that song hadn't been played in years by Bob. So I, maybe he really did love me. Yeah, I find it amazing that he like allowed you to choose his set list. That's so awesome. That that's like that's so special. Well, it's also intoxicating. You know, it's very you know intoxicating to be um, uh, in the in the eyes of someone that you practically worship, you know, and having them look upon you so glowingly that you're like mesmerized, you're, you know, possessed. Oh, yeah. In my case, you know. Yeah. But you know what I I wanted to mention to you? I looked Alice up online and her book looks amazing. Did you guys read it? We have. It's so good. We definitely recommend if you can find it. I think she said she's going to try to publish it again. I don't know. She was saying things yeah. about um, she she struggled with it a little bit. She had felt some shame over it. It wasn't the title that she had wanted. And I know that there are some very like personal and autobiographical things in it. She needs to give herself more credit. Oh yeah, it's, it's an because book. it actually right. is a really incredible book. And but if you read it, you'll see how sort of vulnerable you have to be to write something like that. So I really like, and I'm so happy that we get to talk to you and about who you are and the accomplishments that you've done that have just been, you know, just so much more than, than just being in a relationship with Bob Dylan for, um, for a moment in time, but just so you're so much more. And so is she, right? She's, she's so interesting and fascinating and vulnerable. And, um, it's so nice that everybody is being exposed to their writing and your music and, and stuff like that. So it's what we're really trying to do over here. Uh, Uh, I can't wait to hear it. So what brings you joy now? How are you spending your days? Are, are you working on anything? Any new music coming? Or just zenning out? Oh, no. Then, then not in my repertoire. <laughs> I, uh, I, <laughs> I'm, you know, today I, I tried to make a conscious effort to be a slightly zenned out before we spoke. But um, I seem to have projects. I'm just somebody who has projects and it doesn't matter whether it's helping a friend plan a party or 
you know, I I need to go through and edit all my pictures on my computer because I love photography. I take pictures of birds. I'm a birder. <laughs> and uh, I know that's really nerdy, I'm sure. But, um, but, man, when you live out in these natural places and you see these birds, it's just such a reminder of what our world is really about, you know. But um, I did just write a song. Uh, well, actually, I, it's the thing is, is that I don't know if you've noticed, but the U.S. is in terrible decline. Oh, yeah. <laughs> noticed. Um, at least from my, <laughs> from my perspective. And not only that, our planet is in decline. Also so, noticed. You know, I'm very much focused on politics these days. Um, there's this fabulous thing called postcards to voters where you actually need, you buy a blank postcard and you draw on it before you send it out to voters to get them to go. You know, you might, like in my case, do vote in a, in, in, you know, 1960s script, even with peace symbols or whatever. Um, so that, you know, you can work out a lot of grief, but apparently, I mean, they've been really successful. So I highly recommend that to anybody who's listening, postcards to voters. And, um, uh, I am in the process of co-producing with a friend. Um, we're going to do three benefit concerts for Lock the Vote. Amazing. And they'll be on the They'll be on the small, smaller side, like ten artists per bit, um, and a little bit closer to the election uh, to give these organizations um, who are getting people to the polls and all of that sort of thing a little extra boost. So my latest song is an anthem, and. Um, I don't want to give it away, but uh, the gist of it is we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and, it's a, and it's a sing-along, so um, we're copywriting it today as we, as we speak. So. Nice. Very cool. We can't wait to sing along. Yeah. You're thinking of yeah. like really fun I'll, ways. I'll yeah, really fun ways to, you know, participate in politics and get people out there voting and everything. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've read something that's, and I believe it, that said this next election is not between the candidates. It's between democracy and fascism. So I think we better get our people out. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely an important one. Oh, God, I can't like, yeah, as Canadians, we're just like, you know, sitting by and and watching the flames and it's, you know, we feel helpless, like not a lot that we can do. I mean, it's interesting to participate in conversations and also be knowledgeable about our own politics and the relationships that they play and uh, like together with Canada and the US. But really, thank you for doing something like that. And we'll Everyone we'll in Canada is supporting you guys right now, and we, you know you'll get through this. I hope so. I mean, about another two full two more years. I don't, I don't know if I can survive that, but yeah, it's um, pretty sickening. We'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's toxic. Yeah, 
it's toxic and yet you can't totally stick your head in the sand because at any minute you might have to hop on a plane to Washington, D.C. or at least get like from here to Los Angeles, you know, to protest. So, um, well, oh. there's this. So our network, Rock and Roll Archaeology, um, they are out in San Francisco and they have a studio in Hollywood, but they interviewed Amit Zappa. Um, who is Frank Zappa's son. And one of the questions they asked Mm -hmm. him was, what do you think your father would say about the current political situation? And Amit replied, I think he's already said it. Well, you know, believe it or not, I used to think that Frank Zappa should run for office. I, I mean, his politics, were, you know, and his voice uh, was so remarkable. I had a great experience with uh, Mr. Zappa, not close up and personal, but when I was hitchhiking across Europe in 1970 with my girlfriend, we wound up in Amsterdam. I don't think I mentioned it in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Maybe in the next edition, mm-hmm. <laughs> but since it is all rock and roll or whatever. But uh, we went into this uh, club called the Paradise Club. Um, someone told me uh, many years ago that it was still there. I don't know that it's there anymore. But it was like this big, gigantic room, and you sat on the floor and basically um, partook of whatever was being passed by you at the time. And they said that they had a special guest. I mean, it was so random that we were there that night. And they were passing these joints that were the size of cigars. And they were half tobacco is the way they would do it. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was just completely open-hearted to receive whatever came to them. And what came to us was Frank Zappa in Amsterdam, and he did an entire show. Oh, my God. It was really Talk about being in the right uh, place at the right time. I know. I know, right? Yeah. So It's always interesting when experiences like that happen where you're from the same city. Like, you're so close, yet you have to oh. go all the way over to Europe to, you know, see them in this incredible, like, randomness exactly exactly yeah well there's advantages and disadvantages to the world being as small as that you were talking about canada and um you know my publisher for the book is in england and they're completely distraught about what's happening here also as they should be so yeah yeah, we're all distraught. Anyway, and I think both. this has been a long time coming. This didn't just happen overnight. And, um, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, our young people are very, very awake to what's happening, whereas I think I pretty yeah. much slept through all of that stuff as a child and as a teen and really wasn't even until my late 20s, early 30s that I started listening up and paying attention to what was happening whereas that's just not the case anymore so there's two more years of him but there's a really wonderful generation of children coming forwards i think so let's just hope that our future is bright but we just need to get through this this. yeah yeah 
I mentioned the Parkland kids in my song. I'm hoping to make a video, too, so I'll make sure you guys get copies in on all of it. We love that. And speaking of your music, now that listeners have uh, got to know you more and hopefully feel inspired to go get your book, where can they find your music and purchase your CDs or anything that you've got to sell? Yeah. Well, the latest CD, it's called What the Heart Wants, has the song I wrote with Bob on it. And uh, that, that song is called You Can Blow My Mind If You Want To. <laughs> and it's a really fun, sexy song. And it has also, there's like, um, you know, I have the cover of, of uh, Make You Feel My Love. And then a couple of songs that I wrote for him. There are some people who think every song in the album is about him, and that's just not true. But um, it's available on CD Baby, iTunes. Amazon and my website Perfect. and my book, seeing the review at last life and love on the road with Bob Dylan can be found at Amazon and other outlets too, as either a paperback or an ebook. But I sell personally signed first editions on my website, BritaLeeShane.com. Excellent. We'll definitely link that up on our site as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And, you know, we read so many um, autobiographies. We read so many books. And I can really say from the bottom of my heart that yours was in is will be one of my all time favorites. So thank you for sharing it. Uh, Thank you for putting it out there. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Take care of you guys. All right. We'll talk to you very soon. Bye, Brita. And vote. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Big life, baby, but when you shut it down, my whole world goes gray, murky, I can't hear a sound. I try my best to get to you, but you just disappear. Some people think that you're a star, I just think you're weird. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine 
have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.